Part 5 of Batwing by Sax Romer. Read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Batwing, Chapter 10 The Night Walker. If luncheon had seemed extravagant, dinner at Cray's Folly proved to be a veritable Roman banquet. To associate ideas of selfishness with Miss Beverley was hateful, but the more I learned of the luxurious life of this queer household hidden away in the Surrey Hills, the less I wondered at anyone's consenting to share such exile. I had hitherto counted an American steak dinner, organized by a lucky plunger and held at the Café de Paris, as the last word in extravagant feasting but I learned now that what was caviar in Monte Carlo was ordinary fare at Cray's Folly. Colonel Menendez was an epicure with an endless purse. The excellence of one of the courses upon which I had commented led to a curious incident. "'You approve of the efforts of my chef?' said the Colonel. "'He is worthy of his employer,' I replied. Colonel Menendez bowed in his cavalierly fashion, and Madame de Stemmer positively beamed upon me. "'You shall speak for him,' said the Spaniard. "'He was with me in Cuba, but has no reputation in London. There are hotels that would snap him up.' I looked at the speaker in surprise. "'Surely he is not leaving you?' I asked. The Colonel exhibited a momentary embarrassment. No, 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 he replied, waving his hand gracefully. I was only thinking that he, there was a scarce perceptible pause, might wish to better himself, you understand. I understood only too well, and recollecting the words spoken by Paul Harley that afternoon, respecting the Colonel's will to live, I became conscious of an uncomfortable sense of chill. If I had doubted that in so speaking he had been contemplating his own death, the behavior of Madame de Stemmer must have convinced me. Her complexion was slightly but cleverly made up, with all the exquisite art of the Parisienne, but even through the artificial bloom I saw her cheeks blanch. Her face grew haggard and her eyes burned unnaturally. She turned quickly aside to address Paul Harley but I knew that the significance of this slight episode had not escaped him. He was by no means at ease. In the first place, he was badly puzzled. In the second place, he was angry. He felt it incumbent upon him to save this man from a menace which he, Paul Harley, evidently recognized to be real, although to me it appeared wildly chimerical and the very person upon whose active cooperation he naturally counted not only seemed resigned to his fate, but by deliberate omission of important data added to Harley's difficulties. How much of this secret drama proceeding in Cray's folly was appreciated by Val Beverley I could not determine. On this occasion I remember she was simply but perfectly dressed, and in my eyes seemed the most sweetly desirable woman I had ever known. Realizing that I had already revealed my interest in the girl, I was oddly self-conscious, and a hundred times during the progress of dinner I glanced across at Harley, expecting to detect his quizzical smile. He was very stern, however, and seemed more reserved than usual. He was uncertain of his ground, I could see. He resented the understanding which evidently existed between Colonel Menendez and Madame de Stemmer 
and to which, although his aid had been sought, he was not admitted. It seemed to me, personally, that an almost palpable shadow lay upon the room, although, save for this one lapse, our host throughout talked gaily and entertainingly, I was obsessed by a memory of the expression which I had detected upon his face that morning, the expression of a doomed man. What in heaven's name, I asked myself, did it all mean? If ever I saw the fighting spirit looking out of any man's eyes, it looked out of the eyes of Don Juan Sarmiento Menendez. Why, then, did he lie down to the menace of this mysterious bat-wing? And if he counted opposition futile, why had he summoned Paul Harley to craze folly? With the passing of every moment I sympathized more fully with the perplexity of my friend, and no longer wondered that even his highly specialized faculties had failed to detect an explanation. Remembering Cullen Camber as I had seen him at the Lavender Arms, it was simply impossible to suppose that such a man as Menendez could fear such a man as Camber. True, I had seen the latter at a disadvantage, and I knew well enough that many a genius had been also a drunkard. But although I was prepared to find that Cullen Camber possessed genius, I found it hard to believe that this was of a criminal type. That such a character could be the representative of some remote Negro society was an idea too grotesque to be entertained for a moment. I was tempted to believe that his presence in the neighborhood of this haunted Cuban was one of those strange coincidences which in criminal history have sometimes proved so tragic for their victims. Madame de Stemmer, avoiding the colonel's glances, which were pathetically apologetic, gradually recovered herself, and— "'My dear,' she said to Val Beverly, "'you look perfectly sweet to-night. Don't you think she looks perfectly sweet, Mr. Knox?' Ignoring a look of entreaty from the blue-gray eyes, "'Perfectly,' I replied. "'Oh, Mr. Knox,' cried the girl, "'why do you encourage her? She says embarrassing things like that every time I put on a new dress.' Her reference to a new dress set me speculating again upon the apparent anomaly of her presence at Cray's Folly. That she was not a professional companion was clear enough. I assumed that her father had left her suitably provided for, since she wore such expensively simple gowns. She had a delightful trick of blushing when attention was focused upon her, and said Madame de Stemmer, "'To be able to blush like that, I would give my string of pearls—no, half of it.' "'My dear Marie,' declared Colonel Menendez, "'I have seen you blush perfectly.' "'No, no.' Madame disclaimed the suggestion with one of those Bernhard gestures. I blush my last blush when my second husband introduced me to my first husband's wife. Madame! exclaimed Val Beverly, how can you say such things? She turned to me. Really, Mr. Knox, they are all fables. In fables we renew our youth, said Madame. Ah! sighed Colonel Menendez. Our youth, our youth. Why, sigh, Juan, oh, I regret, cried Madame, immediately. Old age is only tragic to those who have never been young. She directed a glance toward him as she spoke those words, and as I had felt when I had seen his tragic face on the veranda that morning, I felt again in detecting this look of Madame de Stemmer's. 
The yearning, yet selfless love which it expressed was not for my eyes to witness. "'Thank God, Marie,' replied the Colonel, and gallantly kissed his hand to her. "'We have both been young, gloriously young.' When, at the termination of this truly historic dinner, the ladies left us, "'Remember one,' said Madame, raising her white jeweled hand, and holding the fingers characteristically curled. No excitement, no billiards, no cards. Colonel Menendez bowed deeply as the invalid wheeled herself from the room, followed by Miss Beverly. My heart was beating delightfully, for in the moment of departure the latter had favored me with a significant glance, which seemed to say, I am looking forward to a chat with you presently. Ah, said Colonel Menendez, when we three men found ourselves alone. Truly, I am blessed in the autumn of my life with such charming companionship. Beauty and wit, youth and discretion. Is he not a happy man who possesses all these?" "'He should be,' said Harley gravely. The saturnine Pedro entered with some wonderful crusted port, and Colonel Menendez offered cigars. "'I believe you are a pipe-smoker,' said our courteous host to Harley and if this is so, I know that you will prefer your favorite mixture to any cigar that ever was rolled." "'Many thanks,' said Harley, to whom no more delicate compliment could have been paid. He was indeed an inveterate pipe-smoker, and only rarely did he truly enjoy a cigar, however choice its pedigree. With a sigh of content he began to fill his briar. His mood was more restful, and covertly I watched him studying our host. The night remained very warm, and one of the two windows of the dining-room, which was the most homely apartment in Cray's Folly, was wide open, offering a prospect of sweeping velvet lawns touched by the magic of the moonlight. A short silence fell, to be broken by the Colonel. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'I trust you do not regret your fishing excursion.' "'I could cheerfully pass the rest of my days in such ideal surroundings,' replied Paul Harley. I nodded in agreement. "'But,' continued my friend, speaking very deliberately, "'I have to remember that I am here on business, and that my professional reputation is perhaps at stake.' He stared very hard at Colonel Menendez. "'I have spoken with your butler, known as Pedro, and with some of the other servants, and have learned all that there is to be learned about the person unknown who gained admittance to the house a month ago, and concerning the wing of a bat found attached to the door more recently." "'And to what conclusion have you come?' asked Colonel Menendez eagerly. He bent forward, resting his elbows upon his knees, a pose which he frequently adopted. He was smoking a cigar, but his total absorption in the topic under discussion was revealed by the fact that from a pocket in his dinner-jacket he had taken out a portion of tobacco, had laid it in a slip of rice-paper, and was busily rolling one of his eternal cigarettes. "'I might be enabled to come to one,' replied Harley, "'if you would answer a very simple question.' "'What is this question?' "'It is this. Have you any idea who nailed the bat's wing to your door?' Colonel Menendez's eyes opened very widely, and his face became more aquiline than ever. "'You have heard my story, Mr. Harley,' he replied softly. 
If I know the explanation, why do I come to you?" Paul Harley puffed at his pipe. His expression did not alter in the slightest. I merely wondered if your suspicions tended in the direction of Mr. Colin Camber," he said. Colin Camber! As the Colonel spoke the name, either I became victim of a strange delusion, or his face was momentarily convulsed. If my senses served me aright, then his pronouncing of the words Colin Camber occasioned him positive agony. He clutched the arms of his chair, striving, I thought, to retain composure, and in this he succeeded, for when he spoke again his voice was quite normal. "'Have you any particular reason for your remark, Mr. Harley?' "'I have a reason,' replied Paul Harley, "'but don't misunderstand me. I suggest nothing against Mr. Camber. I should be glad, however, to know if you are acquainted with him. We have never met.' You possibly know him by repute?" "'I have heard of him, Mr. Harley, but to be perfectly frank, I have little in common with citizens of the United States.' A note of arrogance, which at times crept into his high, thin voice, became perceptible now, and the aristocratic, aquiline face looked very supercilious. How the conversation would have developed I know not but at this moment Pedro entered and delivered a message in Spanish to the colonel, whereupon the latter arose and with very profuse apologies begged permission to leave us for a few moments. When he had retired, "'I am going upstairs to write a letter, Knox,' said Paul Harley. "'Carry on with your old duties today. Your new ones do not commence until tomorrow.' With that he laughed and walked out of the dining-room, leaving me wondering whether to be grateful or annoyed. However, it did not take me long to find my way to the drawing-room, where the two ladies were seated side by side upon a settee, Madame's chair having been wheeled into a corner. "'Ah, Mr. Knox!' exclaimed Madame as I entered. "'Have the others deserted, then?' "'Scarcely deserted, I think. They're merely straggling.' "'Absent without leave,' murmured Val Beverly. I laughed and drew up a chair. Madame de Stemmer was smoking, but Miss Beverly was not. Accordingly, I offered her a cigarette, which she accepted, and as I was lighting it with elaborate care, every moment finding a new beauty in her charming face, Pedro again appeared and addressed some remark in Spanish to Madame. "'My cher Pedro,' she said, "'I will come at once.' The Spanish butler wheeled the chair across to the settee, and lifting her with an ease which spoke of long practice, placed her amidst the cushions where she spent so many hours of her life. "'I know you will excuse me, dear,' she said to Val Beverly, "'because I feel sure that Mr. Knox will do his very best to make up for my absence. Presently I shall be back.' Pedro, holding the door open, she went wheeling out, and I found myself alone with Val Beverly. At the time I was much too delighted to question the circumstances which had led to this tete-a-tete, but had I cared to give the matter any consideration it must have presented rather curious features. The call first of host and then of hostess was inconsistent with the courtesy of the master of Cray's folly, which, like the appointments of his home and his mode of life, was elaborate. But these ideas did not trouble me at the moment. Suddenly, however, indeed before I had time to speak, the girl started and laid her hand upon my arm. "'Did you hear something?' she whispered. 
A queer sort of sound? No, I replied. What kind of sound? An odd sort of sound, almost like the flapping of wings. I saw that she had turned pale. I saw the confirmation of something which I had only partly realized before, that her life at Cray's Folly was a constant fight against some haunting shadow. Her gaiety, her lightness, were but a mask. For now, in those wide-open eyes, I read absolute horror. "'Miss Beverley,' I said, grasping her hand reassuringly, "'you alarm me. What has made you so nervous to-night?' "'To-night,' she echoed, "'to-night! It is every night. If you had not come,' she corrected herself, "'if someone had not come, I don't think I could have stayed. I am sure I could not have stayed.' "'Doubtless the attempted burglary alarmed you,' I suggested, intending to soothe her fears. "'Burglary!' she smiled unmirthfully. "'It was no burglary.' "'Why do you say so, Miss Beverley?' "'Do you think I don't know why Mr. Harley is here?' she challenged. "'Oh, believe me, I know, I know. I too saw the bat's wing nailed to the door, Mr. Knox. You are surely not going to suggest that this was the work of a burglar.' I seated myself beside her on the settee. "'You have great courage,' I said. "'Believe me, I quite understand all that you have suffered.' "'Is my acting so poor?' she asked with a pathetic smile. "'No, it is wonderful. But to a sympathetic observer only acting, nevertheless.' I noted that my presence reassured her, and was much comforted by this fact. "'Would you like to tell me all about it?' I continued or would this merely renew your fears?" "'I should like to tell you,' she replied in a low voice, glancing about her as if to make sure that we were alone. "'Except for odd people, friends, I suppose, of the Colonel's, we have had so few visitors since we have been at Cray's Folly. Apart from all sorts of queer happenings, which really,' she laughed nervously, "'may have no significance whatever.' The crowning mystery to my mind is why Colonel Menendez should have leased this huge house. He does not entertain very much, then? Scarcely at all. The county—do you know what I mean by the county—began by receiving him with open arms and ended by sending him to Coventry. His lavish style of entertainment they labeled swank—horrible word, but very expressive. They concluded that they did not understand him and of everything they don't understand, they disapprove. So after the first month or so, it became very lonely at Cray's Folly. Our foreign servants, there are five of them altogether, got us a dreadfully bad name. Then, little by little, a sort of cloud seemed to settle on everything. The Colonel made two visits abroad, I don't know exactly where he went, but on his return from the first visit, Madame de Stemmer changed changed, in what way?" I am afraid it would be hopeless to try to make you understand, Mr. Knox, but in some subtle way she changed. Underneath all her vivacity she is a tragic woman, and—oh, how can I explain?" Val Beverley made a little gesture of despair. "'Perhaps you mean,' I suggested, that she seemed to become even less happy than before?" Yes she replied, looking at me eagerly. "'Has Colonel Menendez told you anything to account for it?' 
"'Nothing,' I said. "'He has left us strangely in the dark. But you say he went abroad on a second and more recent occasion?' "'Yes, not much more than a month ago. And after that, somehow or other, matters seemed to come to a head. I confess I became horribly frightened, but to have left would have seemed like desertion, and Madame de Stemmer has been so good to me. Did you actually witness any of the episodes which took place about a month ago? Val Beverly shook her head. I never saw anything really definite, she replied. Yet evidently you either saw or heard something which alarmed you. Yes, that is true, but it is so difficult to explain. Could you try to explain? I will try if you wish, for really I am longing to talk to someone about it. For instance, on several occasions I have heard footsteps in the corridor outside my room. At night? Yes, at night. Strange footsteps? She nodded. That is the uncanny part of it. You know how familiar one grows with the footsteps of persons living in the same house? Well, these footsteps were quite unfamiliar to me. And you say they passed your door? Yes. My rooms are almost directly overhead. And right at the end of the corridor, that is on the southeast corner of the building, is Colonel Menendez's bedroom, and facing it is a sort of little smoke-room. It was in this direction that the footsteps went. To Colonel Menendez's room? Yes, they were light, furtive footsteps. This took place late at night, quite late, long after everyone had retired. She paused, staring at me with a sort of embarrassment, and presently— Were the footsteps those of a man or a woman? I asked. Of a woman. Someone, Mr. Knox, she bent forward, and that look of fear began to creep into her eyes again, with whose footsteps I was quite unfamiliar. You mean a stranger to the house? Yes. Oh, it was uncanny, she shuddered. The first time I heard it I had been lying awake listening. I was nervous. Madame de Stemmer had told me that morning that the Colonel had seen someone lurking about the lawns on the previous night. Then, as I lay awake listening for the slightest sound, I suddenly detected these footsteps, and they paused right outside my door. "'Good heavens!' I exclaimed. "'What did you do?' Frankly, I was too frightened to do anything. I just lay still with my heart beating horribly, and presently they passed on, and I heard them no more. "'Was your door locked?' "'No.' she laughed nervously, but it has been locked every night since then. And these sounds were repeated on other nights? Yes, I have often heard them, Mr. Knox. What makes it so strange is that all the servants sleep out in the west wing, as you know, and Pedro locks the communicating door every night before retiring. It is certainly strange, I muttered. It is horrible, declared the girl, almost in a whisper for what can it mean except that there is someone in Cray's folly who is never seen during the daytime? But that is incredible. It is not so incredible in a big house like this. Besides, what other explanation can there be? There must be one, I said reassuringly. Have you spoken of this to Madame de Stemmer? Yes. Val Beverly's expression grew troubled. 
Had she any explanation to offer? None. Her attitude mystified me very much. Indeed, instead of reassuring me, she frightened me more than ever by her very silence. I grew to dread the coming of each night. Then she hesitated again, looking at me pathetically. Twice I had been awakened by a loud cry. What kind of cry? I could not tell you, Mr. Knox. You see, I have always been asleep when it has come, but I have sat up trembling and dimly aware that what had awakened me was a cry of some kind. You have no idea from whence it proceeded? None whatever. Of course, all these things may seem trivial to you, and possibly they can be explained in quite a simple way. But this feeling of something pending has grown almost unendurable. Then I don't understand Madame and the Colonel at all." She suddenly stopped speaking and flushed with embarrassment. "'If you mean that Madame de Stemmer is in love with her cousin, I agree with you,' I said quietly. Oh, is it so evident as that?" murmured Val Beverly. She laughed to cover her confusion. I wish I could understand what it all means. At this point our tete-a-tete was interrupted by the return of Madame de Stemmer. Oh, la la! she cried. The colonel must have allowed himself to become too animated this evening. He is threatened with one of his attacks, and I have insisted upon his immediate retirement. He makes his apologies, but knows you will understand." I expressed my concern, and— I was unaware that Colonel Menendez's health was impaired, I said. Ah, Madame shrugged characteristically, Juan has travelled too much on the road of life on top speed, Messer Knox. She snapped her white fingers and grimaced significantly. Excitement is bad for him. She wheeled her chair up beside Val Beverly, and taking the girl's hand, patted it affectionately. "'You look pale to-night, my dear,' she said. "'All this bogey business is getting on your nerves, eh?' "'Oh, not at all,' declared the girl. "'It is very mysterious and annoying, of course.' "'But Monsieur Paul Harley will presently tell us what it is all about,' concluded Madame. "'Yes, I trust so.' We want no Cuban devils here at Cray's Folie." I had hoped that she would speak further of the matter, but having thus apologized for our host's absence, she plunged into an amusing account of Parisian society, and of the changes which five years of war had brought about. Her comments, although brilliant, were superficial, the only point I recollect being her reference to a certain Baron Bergman, a Swedish diplomat who, according to Madame, had the longest nose and the shortest memory in Paris, so that in the cold weather he even sometimes forgot to blow his nose. Her brightness, I thought, was almost feverish. She chattered and laughed and gesticulated, but on this occasion she was overacting. Underneath all her vivacity lay something cold and grim. Harley rejoined us in half an hour or so but I could see that he was as conscious of the air of tension as I was. All Madame's high spirits could not enable her to conceal the fact that she was anxious to retire. But Harley's evident desire to do likewise surprised me very greatly. For from the point of view of the investigation the day had been an unsatisfactory one. 
I knew that there must be a hundred and one things which my friend desired to know, questions which Madame de Stemmer could have answered. Nevertheless, at about ten o'clock we separated for the night, and although I was intensely anxious to talk to Harley, his reticent mood had descended upon him again, and— "'Sleep well, Knox,' he said, as he paused at my door. "'I may be awakening you early.' With which cryptic remark, and not another word, he passed on and entered his own room. CHAPTER Eleven. THE SHADOW ON THE BLIND Perhaps it was childish on my part, but I accepted this curt dismissal very ill-humouredly. That Harley, for some reason of his own, wished to be alone was evident enough, but I resented being excluded from his confidence, even temporarily. It would seem that he had formed a theory in the prosecution of which my cooperation was not needed. And what with profitless conjectures concerning its nature, and memories of Val Beverly's pathetic parting glance as we had bade one another good night, sleep seemed to be out of the question, and I stood for a long time staring out of the open window. The weather remained almost tropically hot, and the moon floated in a cloudless sky. I looked down upon the closely matted leaves of the box-hedge, which rose to within a few feet of my window, and to the left I could obtain a view of the close-hemmed courtyard before the doors of Cray's Folly. On the right the yews began, obstructing my view of the Tudor garden, but the night air was fragrant and the outlook one of peace. After a time, then, as no sound came from the adjoining room, I turned in and despite all things was soon fast asleep. Almost immediately, it seemed, I was awakened. In point of fact, nearly four hours had elapsed. A hand grasped my shoulder and I sprang up in bed with a stifled cry, but— "'It's all right, Knox,' came Harley's voice. "'Don't make a noise.' "'Harley,' I said. "'Harley, what has happened?' Nothing, nothing. I am sorry to have to disturb your beauty sleep, but in the absence of Innes I am compelled to use you as a dictaphone, Knox. I like to record impressions while they are fresh, hence my having awakened you." "'But what has happened?' I asked again, for my brain was not yet fully alert. "'No, don't light up,' said Harley, grasping my wrist as I reached out toward the table-lamp. His figure showed a black silhouette against the dim square of the window. Why not? Well, it's nearly two o'clock. The light might be observed. Two o'clock? I exclaimed. Yes, I think we might smoke, though. Have you any cigarettes? I have left my pipe behind. I managed to find my case, and in the dim light of the match which I presently struck I saw that Paul Harley's face was very fixed and grim. He seated himself on the edge of my bed, and— "'I have been guilty of a breach of hospitality, Knox,' he began. "'Not only have I secretly had my own car sent down here, but I have had something else sent as well. I brought it in under my coat this evening.' "'To what do you refer, Harley?' "'You remember the silken rope-ladder with bamboo rungs which I brought from Hong Kong on one occasion?' "'Yes. Well, I have it in my bag now.' But, my dear fellow, what possible use can it be to you at Cray's Folly?" "'It has been of great use,' he returned shortly. "'It enabled me to descend from my window a couple of hours ago and to return again quite recently without disturbing the household. 
Don't reproach me, Knox. I know it is a breach of confidence, but so is the behavior of Colonel Menendez." "'You refer to his reticence on certain points?' "'I do. I have a reputation to lose, Knox, and if an ingenious piece of Chinese workmanship can save it, it shall be saved.' "'But, my dear Harley, why should you want to leave the house secretly at night?' Paul Harley's cigarette glowed in the dark, then— "'My original object,' he replied, "'was to endeavor to learn if any one were really watching the place. For instance, I wanted to see if all lights were out at the guest-house.' "'And were they?' I asked eagerly. "'They were. Secondly,' he continued, "'I wanted to convince myself that there were no nocturnal prowlers from within or without.' "'What do you mean by within or without?' Listen, Knox," he bent toward me in the dark, grasping my shoulder firmly. One window in Cray's folly was lighted up. At what hour? The light is there yet. That he was about to make some strange revelation I divined. I detected the fact, too, that he believed this revelation would be unpleasant to me, and in this I found an explanation of his earlier behavior. He had seemed distraught and ill at ease when he had joined Madame de Stemmer, Miss Beverley, and myself in the drawing-room. I could only suppose that this, and the abrupt parting with me outside my door, had been due to his holding a theory which he had proposed to put to the test before confining it to me. I remembered that he spoke very slowly as I asked him the question, "'Whose is the lighted window, Harley?' Has Colonel Menendez taken you into a little snuggery or smoke-room which faces his bedroom in the southeast corner of the house? No, but Miss Beverley has mentioned the room. Ah, well, there is a light in that room, Knox. Possibly the Colonel has not retired? According to Madame de Stemmer, he went to bed several hours ago, you may remember. True, I murmured, fumbling for the significance of his words. The next point is, he resumed, you saw Madame retire to her own room, which, as you know, is on the ground floor, and I have satisfied myself that the door communicating with the servants' wing is locked. I see. But to what is all this leading, Harley? To a very curious fact, and the fact is this. The Colonel is not alone. I sat bolt upright. What? I cried. Not so loud warned Harley. But, Harley, my dear fellow, we must face facts. I repeat, the Colonel is not alone. Why do you say so? Twice I have seen a shadow on the blind of the smoke-room. His own shadow, probably. Again Paul Harley's cigarette glowed in the darkness. I am prepared to swear, he replied, that it was the shadow of a woman. Harley. Don't get excited, Knox. I am dealing with the strangest case of my career, and I am jumping to no conclusions. But just let us look at the circumstances judicially. The whole of the domestic staff we may dismiss, with the one exception of Mrs. Fisher, who, so far as I can make out, occupies the position of a sort of working housekeeper, and whose rooms are in the corner of the west wing immediately facing the kitchen garden. Possibly you have not met Mrs. Fisher Knox, but I have made it my business to interview the whole of the staff, and I may say that Mrs. Fisher is a short, stout old lady, a native of Kent, I believe, 
whose outline in no way corresponds to that which I saw upon the blind. Therefore, unless the door which communicates with the servants' quarters was unlocked again tonight, to what are we reduced in seeking to explain the presence of a woman in Colonel Menendez's room? Madame de Stemmer, unassisted, could not possibly have mounted the stairs. "'Stop, Harley,' I said sternly. "'Stop!' He ceased speaking, and I watched the steady glow of his cigarette in the darkness. It lighted up his bronzed face and showed me the steely gleam of his eyes. "'You are counting too much on the locking of the door by Pedro.' I continued, speaking very deliberately. He is a man I would trust no farther than I could see him, and if there is anything dark underlying this matter, you depend that he is involved in it. But the most natural explanation, and also the most simple, is this. Colonel Menendez has been taken seriously ill, and someone is in his room in the capacity of a nurse. Her behavior was scarcely that of a nurse in a sick room murmured Harley. "'For God's sake, tell me the truth,' I said. "'Tell me all you saw.' "'I am quite prepared to do so, Knox. On three occasions, then, I saw the figure of a woman, who wore some kind of loose robe, quite clearly silhouetted upon the linen blind. Her gestures strongly resembled those of despair.' "'Of despair?' "'Exactly. I gathered that she was addressing someone presumably Colonel Menendez, and I derived a strong impression that she was in a condition of abject despair. "'Harley,' I said, "'on your word of honor, did you recognize anything in the movements, or in the outline of the figure, by which you could identify the woman?' "'I did not,' he replied shortly. "'It was a woman who wore some kind of loose robe, possibly a kimono. Beyond that I could swear to nothing.' except that it was not Mrs. Fisher. We fell silent for a while. What Paul Harley's thoughts may have been, I know not, but my own were strange and troubled. Presently I found my voice again, and— "'I think, Harley,' I said, "'that I should report to you something which Miss Beverley told me this evening.' "'Yes,' he said eagerly. "'I am anxious to hear anything which may be of the slightest assistance.' You are no doubt wondering why I retired so abruptly tonight. My reason was this. I could see that you were full of some story which you had learned from Miss Beverley, and I was anxious to perform my tour of inspection with a perfectly unprejudiced mind. You mean that your suspicions rested upon an inmate of Cray's folly? Not upon any particular inmate but I had early perceived a distinct possibility that these manifestations of which the Colonel complained might be due to the agency of someone inside the house. That this person might be no more than an accomplice of the prime mover I also recognized, of course. But what did you learn tonight, Knox? I repeated Val Beverly's story of the mysterious footsteps and of the cries which had twice awakened her in the night. "'Hm,' muttered Harley, when I had ceased speaking. "'Assuming her account to be true, why should you doubt it?' I interrupted hotly. "'My dear Knox, it is my business to doubt everything until I have indisputable evidence of its truth. I say, assuming her story to be true, we find ourselves face to face with the fantastic theory that some woman unknown is living secretly in Cray's folly.' perhaps in one of the tower-rooms, 
I suggested eagerly. Why, Harley, that would account for the Colonel's marked unwillingness to talk about this part of the house. My sight was now becoming used to the dusk, and I saw Harley vigorously shake his head. No, no, he replied. I have seen all the tower rooms. I can swear that no one inhabits them. Besides, is it feasible? Then whose were the footsteps that Miss Beverley heard? Obviously, those of the woman who, at this present moment, so far as I know, is in the smoking-room with Colonel Menendez." I sighed wearily. "'This is strange business, Harley. I begin to think that the mystery is darker than I ever supposed.' We fell silent again. The weird cry of a night-hawk came from somewhere in the valley, but otherwise everything within and without the great house seemed strangely still. This stillness presently imposed its influence upon me, for when I spoke again I spoke in a low voice. "'Harley,' I said, "'my imagination is playing me tricks. I thought I heard the fluttering of wings at that moment.' "'Fortunately, my imagination remains under control,' he replied grimly. "'Therefore I am in a position to inform you that you did hear the fluttering of wings. An owl has just flown into one of the trees immediately outside the window." "'Oh!' said I, and uttered a sigh of relief. "'It is extremely fortunate that my imagination is so carefully trained,' continued Harley. Otherwise, when the woman whose shadow I saw upon the blind tonight raised her arms in a peculiar fashion, I could not well have failed to attach undue importance to the shape of the shadow thus created." "'What was the shape of the shadow, then?' remarkably, like that of a bat. He spoke the words quietly, but in that still darkness, with dawn yet a long way off, they possessed the power which belongs to certain chords in music and to certain lines in poetry. I was chilled unaccountably, and I peopled the empty corridors of Cray's folly with I know not what uncanny creatures, nightmare fancies conjured up from memories of haunted manners. Such was my mood, then, when suddenly Paul Harley stood up. My eyes were growing more and more used to the darkness, and from something strained in his attitude I detected the fact that he was listening intently. He placed his cigarette on the table beside the bed and quietly crossed the room. I knew from his silent tread that he wore shoes with rubber soles. Very quietly he turned the handle and opened the door. "'What is it, Harley?' I whispered. Dimly I saw him raise his hand. Inch by inch he opened the door. My nerves were in a state of tension. I sat there watching him, when, without a sound, he slipped out of the room and was gone. Thereupon I arose and followed as far as the doorway. Harley was standing immediately outside in the corridor. Seeing me, he stepped back and— "'Don't move, Knox,' he said, speaking very close to my ear. "'There is someone downstairs in the hall.' wait for me here." With that he moved stealthily off, and I stood there, my heart beating with unusual rapidity, listening, listening for a challenge, a cry, a scuffle. I knew not what to expect. Cavernous and dimly lighted, the corridor stretched away to my left. On the right it branched sharply in the direction of the gallery overlooking the hall. The seconds passed, but no sound rewarded my alert listening until, very faintly, but echoing in a muffled, church-like fashion around that peculiar building, 
came a slight, almost sibilant sound, which I took to be the gentle closing of a distant door. Whilst I was still wondering if I had really heard this sound or merely imagined it, "'Who goes there?' came sharply in Harley's voice. I heard a faint click, and knew that he had shown the light of an electric torch down into the hall. I hesitated no longer, but ran along to join him. As I came to the head of the main staircase, however, I saw him crossing the hall below. He was making in the direction of the door which shut off the servants' quarters. Here he paused, and I saw him try the handle. Evidently the door was locked, for he turned and swept the white ray all about the place. He tried several other doors, but found them all to be locked, for presently he came upstairs again, smiling grimly when he saw me there awaiting him. "'Did you hear it, Knox?' he said. "'A sound like the closing of a door?' Paul Harley nodded. "'It was the closing of a door,' he replied. "'But before that I had distinctly heard a stair creak. Someone crossed the hall then, Knox. Yet, as you perceive for yourself, it affords no hiding-place.' His glance met and challenged mine. "'The Colonel's visitor has left him,' he murmured. Unless something quite unforeseen occurs, I shall throw up the case tomorrow. Chapter Twelve Morning Mists The man known as Manuel awakened me in the morning. Although characteristically Spanish, he belonged to a more sanguine type than the butler, and spoke much better English than Pedro. He placed upon the table beside me a tray containing a small pot of china tea, an apple, a peach, and three slices of toast. "'How soon would you like your bath, sir?' he inquired. "'In about half an hour,' I replied. "'Breakfast is served at nine-thirty, if you wish, sir,' continued Manuel. "'But the ladies rarely come down. Would you prefer to breakfast in your room?' "'What is Mr. Harley doing?' "'He tells me that he does not take breakfast, sir. Colonel Don Juan Menendez would be unable to ride with you this morning.' but a groom will accompany you to the heath if you wish, which is the best place for a gallop. Breakfast on the south veranda is very pleasant, sir, if you are riding first." "'Good,' I replied, for indeed I felt strangely heavy. "'It shall be the heath, then, and breakfast on the veranda.' Having drunk a cup of tea and dressed, I went into Harley's room, to find him propped up in bed, reading the Daily Telegraph and smoking a cigarette. "'I'm off for a ride,' I said. Won't you join me?" He fixed his pillows more comfortably, and slowly shook his head. "'Not a bit of it, Knox,' he replied. "'I find exercise to be fatal to concentration.' "'I know you have weird theories on the subject, but this is a beautiful morning.' "'I grant you the beautiful morning, Knox, but here you will find me when you return.' I knew him too well to debate the point, and accordingly I left him to his newspaper and cigarette and made my way downstairs. A housemaid was busy in the hall, and in the courtyard before the monastic porch a negro groom awaited me with two fine mounts. He touched his hat and grinned expansively as I appeared. A spirited young chestnut was saddled for my use, and the groom, who informed me that his name was Jim, rode a smaller Spanish horse, a beautiful but rather wicked-looking creature. We proceeded down the drive. Pedro was standing at the door of the lodge, talking to his surly-looking daughter. He saluted me very ceremoniously as I passed. 
pursuing an easterly route for a quarter of a mile or so, we came to a narrow lane which branched off to the left in a tremendous declivity. Indeed, it presented the appearance of the dry bed of a mountain torrent, and in wet weather a torrent this lane became, so I was informed by Jim. It was very rugged and dangerous, and here we dismounted, the groom leading the horses. Then we were upon a well-laid main road, and along this we trotted on to a tempting stretch of heathland. There was a heavy mist, but the scent of the heather in the early morning was delightful, and there was something exhilarating in the dull thud of the hoofs upon the springy turf. The negro was a natural horseman, and he seemed to enjoy the ride every bit as much as I did. For my own part I was sorry to return. But the vapours of the night had been effectively cleared from my mind, and when presently we headed again for the hills I could think more coolly of those problems which overnight had seemed well-nigh insoluble. We returned by a less direct route, but only at one point was the path so steep as that by which we had descended. This brought us out on a road above and about a mile to the south of Cray's Folly. At one point, through a gap in the trees, I found myself looking down at the grey stone building in its setting of velvet lawns and gaily patterned gardens. A faint mist hovered like smoke over the grass. Five minutes later we passed a queer old Jacobean house, so deeply hidden amidst trees that the early morning sun had not yet penetrated to it, except for one upstanding gable which was bathed in golden light. I should never have recognized the place from that aspect, but because of its situation I knew that this must be the guest-house. It seemed very gloomy and dark, and remembering how I was pledged to call upon Mr. Cullen Camber that day, I apprehended that my reception might be a cold one. Presently we left the road and cantered across the valley meadows, in which I had walked on the previous day, re-entering Cray's Folly on the south although we had left it on the north. We dismounted in the stable-yard, and I noted two other saddle-horses in the stalls, a pair of very clean-looking hunters, as well as two perfectly matched ponies, which, Jim informed me, Madame de Stemmer sometimes drove in a chaise. Feeling vastly improved by the exercise, I walked around to the veranda and through the drawing-room to the hall. Manuel was standing there, and, "'Your bath is ready, sir,' he said. I nodded and went upstairs. It seemed to me that life at Cray's Folly was quite agreeable, and such was my mood that the shadowy bat-wing menace found no place in it save as the chimera of a sick man's imagination. One thing only troubled me—the identity of the woman who had been with Colonel Menendez on the previous night. However, such unconscious sun-worshippers are we all that in the glory of that summer morning I realized that life was good, and I resolutely put behind me the dark suspicions of the night. I looked into Harley's room ere descending, and, as he had assured me would be the case, there he was, propped up in the bed, the daily telegraph upon the floor beside him, and the times now open upon the coverlet. "'I am ravenously hungry,' I said maliciously, "'and am going down to eat a hearty breakfast.' "'Good,' he returned, treating me to one of his quizzical smiles. "'It is delightful to know that someone is happy.' Manuel had removed my unopened newspapers from the bedroom, placing them on the breakfast-table on the south veranda. 
and I had propped the mail up before me and had commenced to explore a juicy grapefruit when something, perhaps a faint breath of perfume, a slight rustle of draperies, or merely that indefinable aura which belongs to the presence of a woman, drew my glance upward and to the left. And there was Val Beverly, smiling down at me. "'Good morning, Mr. Knox,' she said. "'Oh, please, don't interrupt your breakfast. May I sit down and talk to you?' "'I should be most annoyed if you refused.' She was dressed in a simple summery frock which left her round, sun-browned arms bare above the elbow, and she laid a huge bunch of roses upon the table beside my tray. "'I am the florist of the establishment,' she explained. "'These will delight your eyes at luncheon. Don't you think we are a lot of barbarians here, Mr. Knox?' "'Why?' "'Well, if I had not taken pity upon you, here you would have bad over a lonely breakfast, just as though you were staying at a hotel." "'Delightful,' I replied, now that you are here." "'Ah,' said she, and smiled roguishly, "'that afterthought just saved you.'" "'But honestly,' I continued, "'the hospitality of Colonel Menendez is true hospitality. To expect one's guests to perform their parlor tricks around a breakfast-table in the morning is, on the other hand, true barbarism." "'I quite agree with you,' she said quietly. "'There is a perfectly delightful freedom about the Colonel's way of living. Only some horrid old Victorian prude could possibly take exception to it. Did you enjoy your ride?' "'Immensely,' I replied, watching her delightedly as she arranged the roses in carefully blended groups. Her fingers were very delicate and tactile, and such is the character which resides in the human hand, that whereas the gestures of Madame de Stemmer were curiously stimulating, there was something in the movement of Val Beverly's pretty fingers amidst the blooms which I found most soothing. "'I passed the guest-house on my return,' I continued. "'Do you know Mr. Camber?' She looked at me in a startled way. "'No,' she replied. "'I don't. Do you?' I met him by chance yesterday. Really? I thought he was quite unapproachable, a sort of ogre. On the contrary, he is a man of great charm." "'Oh,' said Val Beverly, "'well, since you have said so, I might as well admit that he has always seemed a very charming man to me. I have never spoken to him, but he looks as though he could be very fascinating. Have you met his wife?' "'No. Is she also American?' My companion shook her head. "'I have no idea,' she replied. "'I have seen her several times, of course, and she is one of the daintiest creatures imaginable, but I know nothing about her nationality.' "'She is young, then?' "'Very young, I should say. She looks quite a child.' "'The reason of my interest,' I replied, "'is that Mr. Camber asked me to call upon him, and I propose to do so later this morning.' "'Really?' Again I detected the startled expression upon Val Beverly's face. "'That is rather curious, since you are staying here. Why?' "'Well,' she looked about her nervously, "'I don't know the reason, but the name of Mr. Camber is anathema in Cray's folly. Colonel Menendez told me last night that he had never met Mr. Camber.' Val Beverly shrugged her shoulders, a habit which it was easy to see she had acquired from Madame de Stemmer. Perhaps not, she replied, but I am certain he hates him. Hates Mr. Camber? 
"'Yes,' her expression grew troubled. "'It is another of those mysteries which seem to be part of Colonel Menendez's normal existence. "'And is this dislike mutual? "'That I cannot say, since I have never met Mr. Camber. "'And Madame de Stemmer, does she share it? "'Fully, I think. "'But don't ask me what it means, because I don't know.' She dismissed the subject with a light gesture and poured me out a second cup of coffee. "'I am going to leave you now,' she said. "'I have to justify my existence in my own eyes. "'Must you really go? I must, really. "'Then tell me something before you go.' She gathered up the bunches of roses and looked down at me with a wistful expression. "'Yes, what is it?' "'Did you detect those mysterious footsteps again last night?' The look of wistfulness changed to another which I hated to see in her eyes, an expression of repressed fear. "'No,' she replied in a very low voice. "'But why do you ask the question?' Doubt of her had been far enough from my mind, but that something in the tone of my voice had put her on guard I could see. "'I am naturally curious,' I replied gravely. "'No,' she repeated. I have not heard the sound for some time now. Perhaps, after all, my fears were imaginary." There was a constraint in her manner which was all too obvious, and when presently, laden with the spoil of the rose-garden, she gave me a parting smile and hurried into the house, I sat there very still for a while, and something of the brightness had faded from the coming, nor did life seem so glad a business as I had thought it quite recently. End of chapter 12